reading from Ruth chapter 1, and I'm sorry, I don't know the, the number. Um, 187. Okay. I was um, struck this morning how knowing the story of Ruth, and we know the happy ending, it's sometimes easy to forget the tragedy of the first half of this story. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judea, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. Sorry, get tongue-tied. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. 
The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Will you join with me in prayer, please? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, your word that tells us that Jesus loves us. And uh, Father, we pray that as the uh, children are being taught next door in Sunday school, that they would have that great truth uh, um, planted firmly in their minds and their hearts. We pray for ourselves that you would uh, help us to humbly sit under your word now, uh, grant by your spirit that we would have insight and understanding, that we would uh, be responsive and uh, live lives of faithfulness to you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I say to you that a particular person is a faithful person, what sort of person do you envisage? What sort of a person would you think of as being a faithful person? What does it mean to be faithful? I guess that uh, you might think of a person who, for example, is someone who you can, um, you can depend on, uh, the, the, uh, the kind of person who won't let you down. Uh, do you think of the kind of person who, if they promise that they're going to do something, then you, you're pretty calm about that because you know that it's as good as done because they're a faithful person. We, we treasure people who are faithful, don't we? And there's good reason for that because of the fact that when we can trust a person, when they are dependable, when they're reliable, when they are faithful, then that makes us feel rather secure. It, uh, it gives us that sense of peace, particularly if we're in if we're in, if we are in an important relationship with that person, there is great security, there is great comfort, there is great peace in knowing that the person who we are in relationship with is a person who is faithful. Now, think about the opposite to that. Think about the unfaithful person. That's the person who, quite frankly, you just can't depend on. Uh, that's the person who can't be trusted, that's the person who when they say that they're going to do something, you think, yeah, I'll, I'll believe that when I see it. They're the person who, because they can't be trusted, because they're not faithful, because they're not reliable, when we're in relationship with them, they bring into our lives a degree of insecurity. A degree, they make us feel insecure, they make us feel vulnerable, and instead of peace uh, for our, in our lives, they become a source of stress and, and anxiety. Now, the Bible book that we're going to start looking at today does say a fair bit about faithfulness. Uh, it's about the faithfulness of a young lady by the name of Ruth uh, towards her mother-in-law. And at a deeper level, it's about the faithfulness and the loving kindness of, of God towards just ordinary people, just an ordinary family, and by extension to people like you and people like me. 
Now, before we dive into the book of Ruth, let me just say a few words as to why we are studying the book of Ruth. Um, Each year, I I do like to cover a mix of uh, particular types of books and particular styles of literature in our preaching uh, throughout the year. So I like there to be a balance and a mix of uh, Old Testament books and New Testament books. And even within that, say within the New Testament, to get a a balance and a mix of the types of books in the New Testament. So we we tend to uh, do a series on a gospel each year and then we might do one or two of the epistles. And then in the Old Testament, we might look at uh, a... uh, particular style such as a wisdom literature and maybe a, a narrative and we also try to blend in with that the occasional uh, topical series as well. We're coming towards the end of the year. Uh, I wonder if you can remember what we've studied this year. It's easy for me, I've got it all written down and uh, but mind you sometimes I have to check out the website to work out what we've actually uh, studied but let me just refresh your memory we start off the year with a, sh- a short series on uh, the book of on the gospel of Luke um, we've also covered Colossians this year uh, we've just finished the book of Revelation um, I wonder if anyone we've done an Old Testament book this year I wonder if anyone can remember what the Old Testament book is that we've done already this year it would be thank you Roy it would be Ecclesiastes wisdom literature so that's our Old Testament's been wisdom literature it's a good time for us to do uh, a book of the Old Testament which is which is narrative which tells us the story about uh, God and his dealings with people with his people you might also think that it's a good time to study Ruth because you're thinking we need, to need some kind of relief from all of the uh, intensity and the colour and the seriousness and, of the, and the action of the book of Revelation. I mean, Ruth, it's, you think that's just a homely story about a, about a family. Now, there is some truth in that, and I think that it's good to mix the styles around so it's not all intense all of the time. But um, I'm really hoping, and I'm praying and I'm thinking that this is going to be the case that over the next few weeks that Ruth is going to really disturb you. Uh, People say to me and sort of after the first service people say oh lovely book of Ruth really love the book. Well I'm praying that the book of Ruth is going to disturb you and to provoke you into thinking through uh, God's faithfulness to, uh, to, to ordinary people and how we ought to be responding in faith uh, in trust towards the one who is worthy of our trust, towards God. And how this story from the Old Testament pushes its way through uh, to a great blessing for us as God's people who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's my hope as we look at the book of Ruth. I wonder if you might uh, want to open up Uh, at Ruth chapter 1, which you'll find on page 187. In fact, uh, uh, it it follows on straight after the book of Judges. And there's good reason for that. Because if you have a look at Ruth uh, chapter 1, in verse 1, 
the events that are described in the book of Ruth all happened during the days when the judges ruled. You see that in verse 1? Now, you remember the judges. Who were the judges? And what was this time of the judges? What was that all about? Well, it was a time when Israel had settled into the promised land. They were well settled in the land. And they had a king. Does anyone remember what the name of the king was who was their king during the period of the judges? This is a bit of a trick question. Ben? Yeah, they had a king. His name was God. Uh, and the, his personal name is Yahweh. It's, uh, it's Y-W-H-W. And when you see in your Old Testaments the word Lord all in capitals, uh, that is actually the personal name of God, Yahweh. So God was their king and God ruled uh, through his priests and through his prophets who would deliver the word, uh, his word to his people. Uh, you'll see, uh, uh, you know, uh, towards the end of that, that uh, people were saying, hang on, we don't actually have a king. And uh, in 1 Samuel they say, we'd actually like a king like all of the other nations. But God, or Yahweh, was their king during the period of the, of the judges. Now, they didn't always live as if God was their king because uh, they would, uh, uh, sometimes they would be living faithfully uh, under God as their ruler, but then they would start to dabble in the false gods, in idolatry. And God doesn't take kindly to that. He's a jealous God. And when he would do that, when they, they would do that, God would, would uh, punish Israel. He would discipline them, often through foreign armies invading. And those foreign armies, apart from all of the death that they would cause, would often cause destruction of the, of the farmlands, of the agriculture, of the, of the crops, and that would cause famine. And then uh, Israel would be humbled and they would cry out to God for deliverance. And God would raise up special people who are called judges. Now, they're not judges in the strict kind of sense of being like magistrates. In fact, when you read about the judges, they're more like heroes, um, people who would lead armies and so on. Do you remember the names of some of the judges, by the way? Anyone? <clears throat> yes, Lachlan. Samson. Samson, yes. Samson was one of the judges. That's a good one. Yep. Samuel? Gideon was one of the judges, and we all know about Gideon and his fleece. Let's try another one. Anyone else want to? What's that? Deborah. So Deborah was the, uh, the lady who led uh, the army and so on. So they're, they're three of the really famous ones, aren't they? There was also Ehud, who had a very short sword, which he stuck into the belly of a really fat guy, and uh, he lost the sword. Um, there was the other guy, I think it was Barak, who uh, killed a whole lot of people with the jawbone of an ass and these are these are colorful interesting fascinating characters and uh, and so what would happen is that God would raise up these people and they would bring about deliverance through through God would use them to deliver God's people from their enemies and things would settle down again uh, people would be faithful to God but then they'd fall into idolatry 
And then God would punish them again and then they would cry out to God for help and God would raise up another judge who'd come in and rescue them. And throughout the book of Judges, if it's like a line, but there's this cycle of, uh, of sin and judgment and confession and repentance and salvation and then sin right the way through. And this is what's happening on the national scene, but what Ruth does is Ruth zeroes in on one family, just one family, an ordinary family, a family a bit like one of our families, I guess. Except they weren't just ordinary. I wonder if you can see how they're described in verse 2. In verse 2, they were from the town of, what's the town? Bethlehem. Now, there are a number of Bethlehems in, uh, in Israel, but uh, this is the one that we're familiar with. This was Bethlehem in Judah, where our Lord Jesus was born. But you might note there that they are described as being Ephrathites from Bethlehem. And you scratch your head and you think, what on earth is an Ephrathite? Well, uh, to be an Ephrathite meant that they were an old, established family. Uh, because uh, Ephrathah was the previous name of the town of Bethlehem. And, and so, uh, in other words, uh, these were locals. These were, you might call them the landed gentry. These were people who had uh, deeply established roots uh, in the community. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. And they were a family of four, their names... Uh, like most like Hebrew names, have meaning. Uh, the husband, his name was Elimelech, and that means, my God is king. Eli, El, is God, and Melech is king. My God is king. Um, his wife's name is Naomi. That's a great name, Naomi, because it means pleasant, uh, or it can mean sweetness. That's a nice name to give a little girl, isn't it? Uh, and then they had two sons called Marlon and Kilion. And uh, their names aren't quite so sweet um, because they mean something like, uh, one of them means weak, the other one means failing. What a great name to give your kid, is it? <laughs> Fail? <laughs> Uh, reminds me of that old Johnny Cash song, a, a boy named Sue. You know, the father gave him the son, gave his son the name just to make him tough through life. But this might reflect something of their physical condition uh, when they were infants, perhaps. But, but um, in all of that, in verse one, there is a shortage of food in Israel. Now, sometimes, as I mentioned, that shortage of food would happen as a result of God's judgment when invading armies would destroy, would destroy, would destroy crops. And although Elimelech had the responsibility to provide for his family, you have to question whether or not he was living up to his name, my God is king, by the way that he responded to the famine. Because instead of staying in the land that God had given like a lot of his relatives did, uh, and, and waiting for God's help, Elimelech uh, migrated his family to the neighbouring uh, Gentile land 
of, um, of Moab. Now, do you remember the Moabites? Well, let me uh, refresh your memory. The Moabites were the descendants of who? Does anyone remember? This is a really easy question. Moab. Thank you very much. Now, Moab, who was he? Well, Moab was the son of, does anyone remember? No, not quite. Lot. Lot, this is an easier question, was the nephew of Abraham. You guys are doing really well with your Old Testament. That's great. So uh, the Moabites were kind of distant relatives of the Israelites. They worshipped a different god. We learnt about him when we studied two kings last year. Uh, They worshipped a god called Chemosh. And uh, Chemosh was a delightful god. Uh, They would um, worship him uh, sometimes by offering up child sacrifices. And uh, so, uh, uh, um, yeah, it was not particularly uh, a great state of affairs. Now, even in famine, Elimelech should have trusted that Yahweh was his God, as his name implied, and he should have stayed in the land, but he didn't. When they left, um, Ruth would have considered her life to be very full because in terms of what an Israelite woman would value, when she left, she had a husband and she had two sons. But life uh, in Moab uh, would not be full. Life in Moab for her would leave her empty Uh, because although... Her two sons married Moabite women uh, named Orpah and Ruth. Within ten years, all three of the men in her life would be dead. Her husband and her two sons, and she had no grandchildren. Now imagine that. I mean, I, I think it's easy to skate over a verse like that and not to really reflect on it. As Joanne said earlier on, you know, you think of the good news ending of this story, but you kind of skate over the suffering uh, in our context if if one of our church members was to have a husband who died and have two sons that would die we would consider that to be catastrophic with uh, causing lifelong uh, grief and suffering and it's the kind of situation that just doesn't happen it, during the second world war there would have been women who lost their husbands and you know to a couple of their children but it's not something that... Ha- and, it, and it causes incredible suffering, un- un- unimaginable suffering. And so, no, so Naomi was now heartbroken and she was poor. Same goes for her daughters-in-law. And when she heard that the famine in Israel was now over, well, she decided to return. You see that in verses 6 and 7, if I can read that for you. Verse 6. Uh, When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And so the stage is now set for Naomi to go home. And her two daughters-in-law, they wanted to come along with her. Now, you'd think that that's what 
Naomi would appreciate um, to get that support from them. And in a sense, the daughters-in-law would be honouring their their husbands by caring for uh, their mother-in-law. But it's not what Naomi wants. Why? I mean, you'd think she'd be happy about that. But the reason that Naomi is not happy about it is this. In the ancient world, uh, like in some cultures today, uh, there was only one career option open for women. What do you think that was? Marriage. Marriage was the only career option open for a woman. Um, The man was the provider. The woman was the mother. And so if a woman was single or if she was a widow, she would have a difficult plight. And that's why the Old Testament law uh, uh, provides for the, it legislates that widows should be provided for by the community. Naomi wants these younger widows to remarry, to get married again. The problem was if they lived in Israel it would be really difficult for them to find a husband. And the reason? Well, it's they're Gentiles. They're, they're Moabites. And so in verses 8 and 9, she says to them, it's a really good idea for you girls uh, to stay here in Moab and, uh, and to go back to your mother's household. We're not sure why she says go back to your mother's household because normally it would say go back to your father's household. Maybe their fathers were deceased, or it may be that uh, because of polygamy, that a uh, you know a wealthy man would have multiple wives who would actually oversee their own little households. Maybe that's what's going on there. We don't know, but <clears throat> uh, the reason that she wants them to go back to their mother's household is so that God. And you notice it's L-O-R-D in capitals there, so she's personalising that as the God of Israel, Yahweh, so that Yahweh would give them another husband, a Moabite husband. Now, they didn't buy that, and so in verses 11 through to 13, having said it's a good idea to stay in Moab, Naomi then says, well, it's a really bad idea for you to come back with me to the land of Israel, to Judah. And the reason that she gives seems very strange to us. We're going to have a look at that reason. It's in verses 11 through to 13. Can everyone have a look at that? Verse 11 through to 13. She says this, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait around until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Now, what she's saying here, I mean, it sounds really weird, doesn't it? It's a, it's a different world. Um, Naomi is saying that the only way that her daughters-in-law could find another husband in Israel would be if the following things happened. Number one, Naomi would have to get married, remarried herself. Number two, she would then have to have some baby sons. Number three, 
in about 20 years time or so those baby sons will have grown up into young men and then the very old daughters-in-law could marry them and she's saying you're going to wait around for that I mean it seems strange logic for us uh, you know but not in their culture because uh, I'll explain the reason why it's to do with the law of Moses in chapter 25 verses 5 and 6 it says this that if a married man dies uh, and he doesn't have any sons then his brother has to marry his widow and when they bear a son the first son inherits the name of the deceased brother and so in that way the name of the deceased brother is not obliterated it uh, his family tree continues through the line of that first son that's born to his widow and his brother you get the idea there and it, it really it's a very Hebrew thing it's got to do with the, the value that's placed on families and, and uh, family lines and genealogies and so on and it's called a Leverite marriage I'm not sure if that's the right pronunciation L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E a Levite marriage which means that the man's family doesn't die out now Naomi is not quite correct but this is the only option that she sees for uh, her two daughters-in-law She's saying the only way that these girls could get married um, is if they do that. Now, there is another way, and we're going to see about that in the next couple of weeks, but more of that later. But here she's saying, sorry, girls, but this is your only chance if you come back with me to Israel. It's going to take 20 years, and it's a long shot anyway. Right? Does that make sense? Okay, good. And so in verse 14, Orpah, she says, well, that's enough good reason for me I'm not sticking around for 20 years and uh, the the author doesn't actually judge her for that she doesn't say that she's unfaithful but in verse 14 Orpah says okay uh, Naomi gives her a big kiss and cuddle and then she heads back to her mother's household but not Ruth and Ruth here makes a, a commitment which really has become the classic expression of faithfulness you see it in verse 16 uh, where she says, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Uh, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. That is a classic expression of faithfulness, isn't it? It's uh, pretty nice to have someone be that committed to you. She's not going to leave Naomi, not now and not ever. And in a sense, that does honour her husband because she's, she's care, she wants to be involved in caring for this uh, older widow, Naomi. And because of that commitment, she's prepared to be cut off from her own people in Moab and she's going to make Naomi's people her people. She says it there, doesn't she? Your people will be my people. But there is a spiritual issue here as well, a spiritual question. The question is this. How could a, a Gentile, a Moabite, 
belong to God's people. How could that happen? Friends, the Old Testament does not exclude people from any nation from, from, from joining in and becoming part of God's kingdom. Far from it, Israel was always to be a light to the nations. Israel was always to exhibit and to proclaim who Yahweh is and why all people should put their trust in him. And so when a, a Gentile person uh, came to understand something of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and came to believe in him and put their trust in him, then they're, they're, they're warmly welcomed uh, they can, to be part of God's chosen people, to be circumcised and be part of the community. There is an issue here with Moabites that uh, uh, because of some dealings that they had with Israel in an earlier generation that they would have to wait a few generations before that could take place. But the principle there is that the love of God is for all of the world. Now perhaps Ruth had seen some true godliness in Naomi and her family so that uh, at least in a small sense she came to know something about Yahweh and she came to believe that he truly is God and she put a trust in him. And we see that actually exhibited uh, here in verse 17 because immediately after making this uh, extraordinary commitment to Naomi, in verse 17, uh, who, does, uh, who does Ruth ask to deal with her, be it ever so severely, if she does not fulfil the promise that she's made? The Lord. Uh, she, doesn't ask, she, she doesn't talk about the, the Moabite gods, Molech or Chemosh or whoever, she doesn't talk about the Moabite or the Gentile gods. No, she talks about Yahweh, uh, L-O-R-D, capitalised, Y-W-H-W, Yahweh. She says, may Yahweh, the God of Israel, the true God, the God of the universe, may he be the one who deals with me, be it ever so severely, if I don't fulfil the promise I've just made. And so she's wanting to put herself under his rule and under his discipline. And so together in verse 19, these women journeyed to Bethlehem. Now, you wouldn't ex normally expect a couple of widows wandering into town to cause much of a fuss. But remember who Naomi is. She is an Ephrathite. She's a local. And friends, she was like a prodigal. Because when the going got tough... Uh, Naomi with her husband she'd left uh, and gone elsewhere whilst others stayed but now she's returned to her family to her clan to the people who you know we're told here that the whole town turned out now I'm guessing it was the women really the men it was the beginning of the barley harvest and so the the men would have been out in the field, but the, the and the women women exclaimed, "Could this be Naomi?" Do you see the excitement for them? 
But friends, this reunion is a bitter-sweet reunion because uh, Naomi is fully aware and she says to them, don't call me no, Naomi. In verse 20, she said, remember, Naomi means pleasant or sweetness. She says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me sweet. Instead, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. And so she's saying, don't call me sweet because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Call me Mara, because the Lord has marred me. It's very honest, isn't it? And it expresses the struggle that we will sometimes have when things in life are not going according to plan, when we suffer, when... We know that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and the discipline is often tough. We know from Romans 8 that God in all things uh, works for the good of those who, who love him. Sometimes it's pretty hard to work out what's going on and why this is happening and so on. Uh, and what this tells us here in terms of Naomi saying, call me Mara, call me bitter, is that through the tears of life, she actually has not rejected God. Let me explain that. She knows that God is sovereign. She knows that the tragedies that she's experienced are not simply the random acts of what some people would call bad luck. You know, that's just the way that the, the cards fall. The chips fall. She doesn't believe in luck. She doesn't believe that the that life uh, is just chaotic without any meaning. She believes that there is a sovereign God, a Lord. His name is Yahweh, and He is the one who rules over every event of our lives. And so, she sees God's hand at work even though she may not have known why he's allowed her to suffer. Uh, it's the same realisation that um, Israel would come to throughout the time of Judges, time and time again, when the heavy hand of God was upon them and would bring them back to some degree of humility, faith and repentance. Naomi actually acknowledged the hand of God in her suffering. But she also knew of the loving kindness of God. And we, I mean, we see this in verse 8 when the two daughters-in-law, she's urging them to stay in Moab and she says that you know perhaps God in his loving kindness, and that's the word in the Hebrew, that's the word hesed, it means the loving kindness of God, of Yahweh, that he would provide you with, with husbands. So she hasn't lost sight of the loving kindness of God. And as we'll see uh, in this little book, the loving kindness of God, the faithfulness of God, is not just given to her, but also to her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And through Ruth, 
we're going to see how the loving kindness and the faithfulness of God actually is extended to us, to, to you and me. Because Ruth, the Moabite, did marry. And she actually becomes the great-grandmother of a very important figure in the Old Testament, and that's King David. She's the great-grandmother of King David. Her son uh, gives birth to, to Jesse, is the father of Jesse, is the father of David. You know what that means? That means in terms of that kingly line that she is an ancestor of the one who we could say, we could call ourselves Elimelech, we could say the Lord is king because Jesus is king. She becomes the ancestor in the, in the Davidic line of King Jesus. And she's a Gentile. She's a Moabitess. And of course it's in King Jesus in his faithfulness to God the Father and his faithfulness to us that we receive the most incredible expression of God's loving kindness in his death on our behalf on the cross so that we in turn might be humbled and actually live our lives in faithfulness to the one who's done that. So we're going to... Uh, uh, have an interesting time as we explore more of um, the Israelite culture and the events that happen in the life of this uh, family over the next few weeks. It's my prayer that uh, this lovely little homely book will actually challenge us and uh, draw us to greater faithfulness in God. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for uh, recording your word for us. We thank you, Father God, for the fact that you are sovereign over the affairs of uh, men and women, that in all things you work for our good. We thank you for the faithfulness of Ruth towards Naomi. And Lord, it's our prayer that uh, that model of faithfulness that we see even more abundantly demonstrated in your faithfulness would be the keynote of our lives. We pray that through this book that we would be challenged, that we would be stimulated, we would be motivated to put you first and live with uh, that name Elimelech, that the, the Lord Yahweh is our King. And we pray this in his name, in your name. Amen. So I'm going to encourage you to um, read through the book of Ruth at home. It's not a, not a long book to, uh, to read. One of my Bible study groups during the week, we just um, didn't do a regular Bible study. We just read through the book.